Hello all, and welcome to another Mangum Talks podcast. I'm here today with Josh and BJ to bring you another Mangum Reads episode. Last week, we tackled the idea of a fantasy writer exploring different aspects of the human condition and human psychology and coping with either your own insanity or your own brilliance. This week, we're exploring hard science fiction rockers, writers taking on the concepts of the divine, creation, and eternity and infinity. So we've kind of broadened our philosophical scope a little bit to tackle some, tackle some major philosophical points. Guys, how you doing this? How you doing today? I'm doing all right. I like uh, hard science rockers. You know, I just you know imagine Asimov. In their own way. In their own way, it wasn't an inaccurate thing for me to say. Drums, I'm going to defend. You know, headbanging. It's perfect. I, have you all seen the, the mutton chops that Asimov was rocking? That man could really ball. Josh, how about you? You have a good week. You know, that's what I'm here for, man. I care about you. We've been away for too long. Now, as I said, we're exploring two hard science fiction writers, and in their own ways, they're both pillars of the community. Um, Asimov, as BJ will explain, is very much the foundation, which you'll catch that pun here in a minute, of so many, hard, of so many science fiction writers in other fields to follow. BJ, what can you tell us about a man who is truly one of the great men of his genre? Um, so, so what I actually was going to say is to call science fiction, his genre is, is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, Spencer, you'll appreciate this, that, so there are 10 major categories of the Dewey Decimal System. Mm -hmm. Isaac Asimov has published something in every single one of them, but one. What do you think that is? Well, I know I'm... Okay, I know he wrote history, I know he wrote about religion, I know he wrote about mythology, I know he wrote about, actually wrote science guides, I know he wrote mysteries, I know he wrote detective novels, I don't so know I'll what he didn't write. So, so, generalities, philosophy, religion, social sciences, languages, pure sciences, applied science and technology, arts, literature, and finally history and geography. Which one of those do you think he didn't write in? Geography? Nope. My friend, it is philosophy. But nothing published primarily under that. He wrote part of like a, a companion work. I, I'm, but, I'm, I'm with Josh. That's a distinction with that meaning. He crossed over into philosophy and everything he wrote. Yes, that's fair enough. The other thing that I thought was hilariously insane was... Um, if you look at his bibliography, he literally has published a an original book length work every single year from 1950 until 1996. Isn't it true that he wrote something like 500 books over the course of his life? Uh, so let's see, 504 books, but 357 are original and 150 are uh, edited. Oh. And that's not including non-book lane things like novellas, short stories, things like that. So I think, uh, I think I remember seeing in an interview, he said before that the only time he was truly comfortable and at peace was when he was in front of a typewriter. So I, I can understand why he is truly one of the more prolific writers we'll probably address on the show. Um, and as I remember, so there's a, another very prolific uh, fantasy writer, um, I think it was Piers Anthony, 
who at one point basically talked about how he never gets writer's block. He just, he sort of writes notes for other books in the margins or, you know, as, as notes when he's writing the work that he's, you know, the, the current work and, you know, then he'll flush them out later. Um, and he sort of compared himself a little bit to Isaac Asimov as he and Asimov were the only two writers that he knew of that answered as much fan mail as they could personally. So they were not, not when they were like writing, writing, but they also personally answered a lot of fan mail and, you know, were just, if they weren't writing a book, were writing letters and, and things like that. Um, and had fairly and surprisingly close, uh, connections to, to their audience. Hmm. Um, so I am sending you guys a link to the fourth story. Oh, pulling it up, pulling it up. That we're going to cover today. So it's another Isaac Asimov uh, short story called How It Happened. And since we're going to cover uh, the last question, which sort of talks about the nature of the end of the universe in, in many ways, um, and then it's sort of title pair, but very much a different story, which is the last answer. And then we're going to pair the last answer with a story by Andy Weir, who uh, the last episode, we sort of talked about some dude that published something online, but he happens to also have um, written The Martian and uh, which was then developed into some type of movie with some actors that we don't really know. Um, And apparently has been um, working on other uh, films and TV shows along with some other writing, which I kind of wanted to, to put in a little aside where I find it kind of fascinating that authors that I wouldn't quite say are one hit wonders, but have something that ends up being very popular, just sort of get these contracts to do intensive amounts of work without having proved themselves. Not that I'm uh, always going to throw shade at George R. R. Martin at every one of these episodes. You're going to try. You're going to try every single episode that we do, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he basically hasn't written all that much other than A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, he's done some short stories here and there, but he basically got this huge contract to do work on, on stuff that he hadn't published. And even at that time, he was already missing... Uh, missing his deadlines. So, you know, I guess as we uh, heard not too long ago, the show is sort of following in his footsteps. So that'll be. Um, so I guess a little bit more about Isaac Asimov. Um, he's very much a, a hardcore science fiction writer. Um, in some ways and then in some a lot of his other work he just sort he glosses over it a little bit more um he one of the uh a handful of short stories that he wrote are actually based on in some ways on his phd work in chemistry Mm -hmm. where he did research on mixing times of solutions and there's a series of short stories called the thiotimaline stories where he basically invented this, uh, these two solutions that they mix uh, a minuscule amount of time before you actually pour them together, and so he bases a you know what would happen if such a thing existed, and you know if you 
at least a couple of those stories if you want to go, you know, about as hardcore as possible, where a writer is taking his PhD thesis and making it into science fiction. Um, that's sort of as, as far as you can go into that end. And he, as, um, as you were saying, his background was in the sciences. He was a trained uh, biochemist, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he got his PhD in chemistry. He's done, you know, an incredible, you know, a bunch of, he did a bunch of science and, um, he also, he was publishing stories throughout that time. Um, some of his earliest publications are, um, it was when he was actually fairly young. Um, and as our, in one of the collections of short stories that he has, he sort of talks about that he doesn't, actually have any female characters essentially or or romance in, in his early books because he was a teenager when he was writing it and wasn't particularly popular with the ladies and so he had absolutely no experience in that and rather than trying to write something ham-handedly that he didn't know anything about he just sort of went all right well we're just not going to have that in my books for a while it's it's uh, it's interesting, given that how important he's been to science fiction, how much he's regarded as one of the greatest science fiction writers ever, that he leaves out two things that are pretty common in the science fiction setting. He leaves out any degree of romance because he basically has female characters are fairly marginal in his early works until later on, and he typically, and there are obvious exceptions, leaves out any concept of alien life. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm so I sort of find that oh. that interesting too. Um, I feel like he also has a little bit less space travel um, and things like that. But, you know, he, he has his, his fair share. Um, I think that he got into to robots and that was sort of, you know, why have aliens when you can do all this, you know, cool stuff with, with robots? I mean, it is an alien intelligence, you could argue then. But yeah, no, that's an interesting thing. I haven't really thought about that at all, but yeah. Uh, I, I read a little bit about that leading into this as to why he didn't have um, more aliens in his works. And it kind of ties into, again, about how he started pretty young. He really came up under the wing of uh, John Campbell, who's another pillar of the science fiction community and kind mm -hmm. of nourished and provided a father figure to a lot of young science fiction writers that are coming up in the same period. And Campbell was a real big proponent of humans being the greatest things in all things ever. And so never wanted the idea of an alien life ever getting an edge on humanity. And unwilling to confront his father figure on how he felt that that was kind of dumb, Asimov basically just decided, okay, well, I'll just not write about aliens so that I can avoid that confrontation until a later date. Interesting. Uh, and he also mentioned the lack of uh, space travel. I don't, I'm kind of spitballing on this, but he was also famously afraid to fly. So maybe he didn't want to write space travel in for that reason. Yeah, I... I, I definitely wouldn't be uh, surprised with that. Um, I thought it was him, but maybe it's a different author that um, Highline served in the military. Mm -hmm. And oh yeah, in the naval yard. And I think he and um, yeah, there's a picture of him. That's silly. So him, so uh, Asimov, Highline, and I'll spray to camp who also, you know, incredibly prolific writer. were all at the uh, Navy yard at the same time during world war two. So, yeah. 19. There's a picture of them from 1944. Huh. Um, so, so you sort of wonder if, if they, you know, talked a little bit about it and maybe divvied up the, uh, the pie a little <laughs> bit because 
I would say that they, they don't really cover a lot of the same territory. No, it, it's interesting that um, Asimov, Heinlein, and Arthur C. Clarke were kind of the three great men of their generation with respect to science fiction. And I'd say Clark and Asimov overlap to a certain degree, but Heinlein's just off on his own. Oh, yeah. Hein, well, Heinlein's... I'm sure we will read some Heinlein at some point. He does an incredible amount of good short stories and, and books, but but he is... Um, he was well suited for being in politics in California. He had some unique ideas about many things. And, um, and again, yeah. Again, I will delight when we read any of his works, particularly certain ones of them, just because they are so delightfully controversial. They're, they're, they're the perfect book to stimulate debate because you can't read it without having a strong view afterwards. Yeah, well, actually, there's one that, that might be a little tougher. It was one of his first novels that was only published posthumously. And other than, like, a tiny bit of plot to sort of get you through it, it's basically, you know, preaching lectures in economics and how he thought that basically a, a basic wage was the way to go and made sense. And, and along with, like, banks not being able to to lend money the way that they do. And it was just like, this is hilarious. You know, it's a 200 page, uh, uh, lecture that, you know, it might've been nice if he actually gave, but he, you know, had a couple of characters well, sort of interacting to, to do it. What, like every profession from, you know, doctors and air traffic controllers, writers have off days and you just choose to avoid those when we do this show. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, um, so I sent the guys in, in the uh, chat part of Skype, How It Happened by Isaac Asimov. And it's a relatively short, short story. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm going to recommend you send this to us a day in advance next time. A day in advance? Come on, Spencer. It's not even a page and a half. Uh, well, for one, I'm having a hard time pulling up the link. But... Oh, fair enough. Um, anyway, so, so it's a, a very short, sweet little story sort of about the, uh, creation of the universe. Uh, <laughs> Which very much with his other two short stories we're going to talk about kind of just completes the full circle, I suppose. Exactly. So, so I, I wanted to do this, this episode in pairs. So I was, I was going to suggest how it happened by Isaac Asimov to pair with, the the last question and then the last question will segue us into the last answer but it's you know a very different type of story in a different field but i think it pairs very well with uh andy weir's the egg as sort of two thoughts about you know maybe the end of the universe and the nature of the universe and, and sort of how things work um and i think they sort of progress in in a somewhat similar manner no i think that's a good way to do it um, one last question just about Asimov is that when you're thinking Asimov, what series would people, what would be his main series that people would have heard of or know about in terms of introducing I, him to the man? I would have to say the robot series. I mean, the, the robot, the three laws of robotics are yep. such a codified part of our yeah. culture that, you know, I, I think it even go like is putting comments and, and a lot of code that goes into like uh, driver assistance and things like that. You know, the, the a robot will uh, do no harm to a human or by an action cause a human to, to come to harm. Mm -hmm. um, 
robot will obey a human unless to the degree and, it violates the first law. Uh, and then a robot will avoid harm to itself unless it conflicts to the first two laws. And basically all science fiction sense or even just modern concepts of robotics have been kind of built around that. He established a fundamental law. Yeah. And and I think the funniest part is every everybody that, that I know that does any programming or robotics or anything else say, you know, it's it's a great thing, it's a great storytelling mechanism, but it is the dumbest thing ever if you're actually talking about coding or building a robot. <laughs> Explain why. Well, so they're abstract and very complicated concepts. True. Very true. So it's sort of one of those things that, that, all right, well, what robots do we have? You know, we are you going to program it into a vending machine? Like, hmm. that, that makes no sense. Like, why would you take up space to try and convince a vending machine anything about humans? But, you know, <laughs> it's a robot that is present in pretty much every office building in school. I, I suppose it requires a certain assumption that we're talking about an independent entity that can function without direct and constant control. Uh, okay, so do you think a Tesla should have those three laws in it somehow? Uh, well, it's going to be a fun thing in terms of car accidents once we actually develop automatic cars if we're asked to decide what the minimizing of risk is based on those three laws. Right, but, you know, why take up space when you can, you know, basically if something's in front of you break, you know, you know where the white lines are, don't don't deviate. You know, why, why do anything more than that in terms of, you know, what the car has to do? I mean, yeah, you know, maybe someday when we have you know, robots like True you see AI. in those uh, Boston Dynamics videos, but, <laughs> but until that point. I, uh, I suppose it's to the point that they move beyond simply being tools. <laughs> well, you could kind of say that uh, Daniel Oliva is still kind of a tool. Okay, um, moving on. <laughs> anyway, so so then then I think the the other major series that he's known for is the Foundation, mm -hmm. and with that, you know, you get into psychohistory and and. Uh, the you know the mathematics of, of predictions of the future and things like that, which I think are you know it's a fascinating delve into uh, I don't know just just a completely different civil civilization and and sort of the the lofty goals of what math and science could maybe produce. It, it, it's an interesting read because it, it comes across and sometimes as being a space opera, but it's still very much hard science fiction in terms of plotting out what the future of mankind could be. Yep. Um, and then, you know, so I'm fairly familiar with some of his other stuff, like his mysteries. He had uh, Tales of the Black Widowers. I was, uh, it was actually semi-based on a dinner club that he attended with, um, I think, a bunch of other writers um, and on other people where basically uh, someone would come in and, and either have an issue or be, you know, an expert in the field and just sort of the uh, various dinner club attendants would ask them questions and things like that, along with a very large and sumptuous dinner, hmm. which sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. It does very much indeed. Uh, one um, Asimov short story that I was always very fond of is, uh, have you guys ever read Nightfall? Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Nightfall is great just because it, it has such a fascinating question that inspired it of just how would humanity react if they looked up at the sky and saw the stars for the first time? And it's just a fascinating, like, in philosophical read. I always said he didn't do philosophy, but it kind of always those themes are right at the surface. Oh, I, you know, if you want to start talking philosophy, I mean, just there, there are so many other stories that I that I love so much. Um, well, we, I think Josh, like, you would love the the feeling of power. Um, it's a short story that basically talks about what happens at sort of a logical conclusion of computers basically taking over menial functions and that's happening now and and so why be able to do most math when you can plug it into a computer oh is that the one with the human missiles yes yeah i remember that that was good maybe we'll edit that out because that's a lot of a spoiler, but <laughs> it's not, it's not the subject. There are no spoilers if it's not the subject of the podcast. Yeah, fair enough. But, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, we can put that into the tagline, but, but it sort of talks about how, um, this guy has a hobby of doing like addition and multiplication and, and how it sort of the people around him find it and it's like oh it's a quaint hobby but it's also super fascinating because he's doing things that that everybody doesn't understand how to do anymore because you know it's been taken over by computers yeah and then the other one which spencer i think would be very much up your alley is um, is called profession hmm. i don't think i've heard of that one and it basically talks about a society where you get a brain scan and it tells you what profession you'd be good at and to go do it. And it follows a character that gets a brain scan and they sort of say, yeah, your brain's not good at anything that we see. Why don't you just, we'll, we'll put you in a crazy house. Huh. And it follows it from there. Interesting. It kind of, it kind of reminds me of like a, a Twilight story, the obsolete man, in terms of eliminating people who didn't have value to society. But um, yeah, we're... so, so th- this is probably the other side of the coin, and and a much more positive uh, <laughs> resolution. I, uh, I can imagine that, but so so I feel like we should yeah, let's focus in on the, uh, the stories that we've actually uh, suggested people read, and hopefully by this time. Spencer, you figured out how to read how it happened. Um, so I, I just thought it was sort of a, a cute little story. It, you know, it's barely a page and a half. I think the uh, mass market paper, uh, pulp fiction type paperback book that I have with it in it, it's, it's like a page in like five lines. And it sort of talks about um, the writing of the Bible. Um and I actually find it quite amusing because um, it basically it talks about how uh, it sort of said I'll read you essentially the first two lines. My brother began to dictate in his oratory style, the one which has the tribes hanging on his words. In the beginning, exactly 15.2 billion years ago, there's a big bang in the universe and trails off. And I think it's really funny, and it's a cute little story basically about Moses and, and Aaron arguing with each other about how to put down how creation came about. 
Um, and the reason that I find it so funny is um, at at least in, in Judaism, at the burning bush, Moses tried to avoid being the leader of the Israelites. And um, supposedly he had a speech impediment from something early in his childhood, but basically was saying, you know, my brother is the, the good speaker, the good orator. He's, you know, a high priest, you know, have him do it, not, not me. I'm the younger brother. So I think it's really funny that, that you know, it, it here it has it the other way around. Yeah, I've just read through it now. I love the idea that a certain that marketing factors decided the origin of religion and decided how creation was described. Do you know how much the price of papyrus costs in this day and age? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's just so perfect and so, you know, so funny. And, and, you know, it's not quite as short as some other great, you know, very short stories. Like, um, was it Poe? Uh, the baby shoes never worn oh yeah that hurts the, sad, the, the saddest um the saddest line ever written. yeah so you know but but i feel like it, it's an impressively well-contained little short story yeah i think one thing we should point out here is that despite the fact we're reading three asimov short stories that are all about pretty much religion and god and origins of faith and creation Asimov was a, pretty, was a pretty famous um, atheist and humanist with respect to how he his own life. I think he was, I think he was ethnically Jewish. Wasn't he, weren't his parents Jewish immigrants? Uh, I think they were both, but yeah. But if, for, a per, for a person who was very much, I think he even once said um, that if his children ever became interested in uh, studying religion, that he would try to convince them out of it in the same way he tried to talk them out of smoking or drinking. <laughs> but he said... Huh. You certainly enjoyed writing about certain certain subjects related to it. That's interesting because, well, so I'm, I'm reading here that, that he was fluent in Yiddish and, and uh, you know, learned Russian, but was fluent in Yiddish and English. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was, you know, in some ways somewhat culturally Jewish because of the people around him, but, you know, wasn't particularly fond of um, all the rules and practice, hmm. which... I can sympathize with. Yep. Well, shall we? Shall we introduce the first story? The first story that we that we told our audience about. Yeah, um, uh, Spencer. I, I think uh, you seem to be all excited about it. All right. Well, the last question is an interesting story of Asimov because it's very much one of his favorites. I mean, it's one of the ones he's most famous for, but one that was always close to his heart. I think he wrote once that. It was always dear to him because he wrote it in a single white heat, and that always made it special to him. It was written earlier in his career, back in, I think it was like 1956. And it starts off in a very interesting way. And both of you are much more involved in technology than I am, but this is kind of how I picture um, guys who manage supercomputers spending their spare time. <laughs> is alone, alone in the bottom of the bowels of the computer, just drinking and shooting the shit and asking the computer weird questions. But... I mean not yet. <laughs> but. Well, yeah, yes and no. So, so like you can for for a long time you've been able to get time on on supercomputers to do various things and so I would say that, you know, some people with more access probably do a little bit more in the way of frivolous things. Um I would point you to uh the things that you can get Wolfram Alpha to do. <laughs> Very true. Um, like, you know, calculating how much radiation you would get from, like, a ton of bananas or something along those lines. <laughs> to, be, 
to be something very similar to uh, what Multivac is. And, and I sort of also love that the progression of what I would say is essentially the only character in this story um, is his sort of very or all-powerful uh, computer, the Multivac, that, that uh, gets featured in actually a lot of other short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's sort of the most, uh, plays a starring role, I would say, in this one. And in this story, uh, essentially humanity was dealing with various limitations upon them based on their reliance on coal and uranium, which kind of dates the story. So so they they have an energy shortage of some type, Spencer, you say? I believe that is one of the bases of the story, yes. I mean, it's too bad it's not prescient. I think it's a topic that he wrote about quite a bit um, in terms of things that humanity need to address at an early age. And energy crisis and managing of energy here is the central theme that kind of locks throughout the entire story of our ability to solve one problem and how it create a thousand more unless we actually plot what the ultimate goal and solution is. But in the beginning of the story, uh, mankind was dealing with energy crisis that was limiting its ability to explore the cosmos. But Seven days before this story began, and I love that their celebration is happening on the seventh day. It just continues the biblical themes throughout this entire story. Um, that was another reason that I chose uh, how it happened. I appreciate that. Uh, they come up with mul- they come up with multivac, and multivac develops uh, tech- technological means and understanding by which they can harness the power of the sun, a single space station in orbit to provide for all of the limitless energy needs upon, upon the, pan- the planet below. So having unlocked this miracle technology, which could solve all the problems that they have. Two of the engineers who helped manage Multivac, this massive supercomputer, are sitting down kind of alone in the bowels of it, having a, uh, what was it, how does it describe it? Having a bet over highballs, was that the opening line of the book? Sounds about right, yeah. Um, Where both of them, happily drunk, engage in a conversation, which we kind of do when we're happily drunk, but we decide to basically take the piss out of each other of where one of them just kind of flippantly says that, you know, we've got energy forever now. And the other one, who I like, this is a this is a very much a trope of uh, science fiction of this era. I like that in pretty much every major science fiction book, a way, that you, a way that the author would say that it's far in the future is they've got a Western guy and a Russian guy being friends and not actively trying to kill each other. <laughs> this, this is the reason that Chekhov is on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise is because Roddenberry wanted to say, this is in the future, we've gotten over those little petty concerns. So our two initial humans are very much a Western guy and a Russian guy. The Western guy just kind of flippantly says, you know, we've got energy forever. And the Russian points out, no, we don't. That eventually the sun's going to run out. Eventually the stars are going to die down. And you don't have a solution for that, do you? And kind of flippantly, uh, annoyed that he's been asked the question, annoyed that he's being needlessly contradicted on this point when they've essentially got enough energy to last for billions of years, for the 10 billion year lifetime of the sun. They decide to turn to Multivac to ask, essentially, very. They, they, this question is this is the last question. It's a question that reverberates throughout each of the various time periods we go through. But it all kind of goes around the concept of can entropy be reversed? Can we create energy from what, the dregs of what of, of used forces? That, that would you guys say that's a pretty accurate summary of the various forms the question comes in? Yeah, that, that sounds about right, and, and and I just love the response. And the response is meaningful, not only for what it originally is, but for how it changes over time. 
but the response initially is insufficient data for meaningful answer. And it's a great response that simultaneously freaks the hell out of them. Because it's, again, much of this initial part of the story, they essentially describe themselves as being in the roles of, like, servants to a prophet, of where they don't fully understand how the machine works. The machine kind of runs itself to a certain degree. It manages its own problems. They don't do much other than feed it and kind of answer and interpret its questions, almost like they're ministering to the oracle on the mount. And so when their very much godly device that has given them endless energy, that has given them access to the universe, has a gap in its knowledge, they cancel the bet and leave the room. And it's almost in, in a scared hush. It's sort of like one of those things where it's just like, oh, uh, yeah, we weren't supposed to do that. Hopefully we didn't break it. Uh, yeah, I, you didn't see me. I didn't see you. Yeah. Let's, let's delete the log and steal the security tape before we go. But from, from there, the story consistently jumps through various por- uh, moments in human history. Where we start the story, I think it's in like in 2061, which I love that Asimov, unlike so many other science fiction writers, actually picks dates that would be somewhat realistic or at least possible. Um, or at least things that are realistic. And I sort of love the change of the computer. So that, that one of the things that I find fascinating is that the concept of miniaturization wasn't has net like was i guess in his robot stories but i feel like that was a little bit more of like uh i'm gonna have a robot and we're gonna sort of gloss over how the robot brain works mm-hmm. but usually when there's a ship a, a, a computer or something like that they're all just massive right like computers get bigger and bigger and bigger that's how they become more powerful Right, exactly. Whereas, you know, to a certain extent, that's still true today. Like a bigger computer will be more powerful. But, and and yes, we do have entire buildings essentially devoted to being a computer. But but the amount of information and, and things that they contain are just sort of mind-boggling instead of, you know it starts out as essentially half a room and then quickly, you know, I, I, I think even at this uh, 2061, there's an, you know, an entire complex that there are multiple complexes that are sort of uh, on the connected throughout the earth. Right. And jumping then 500 years in the future, they've finally miniaturized it to the point that it can fit into a spaceship. So miniaturization was something that, a lot of science fiction writers for that period struggled with because nobody really conceptualized how quickly we would be able to do that. And Especially, it, it's not actually miniaturized. It's just a connection to right. it. Right. It is, it, it, yeah. It's essentially a connection to the cloud that is now multivac. Or right. a, AC, I think it's called at that point. One, one example I love of um, Asimov predicting the future is that he wrote a book way back, I think, in the 30s about mankind going to the moon. And he said it in 1974. And he talked about in an interview after the fact how pissed off he was that he was really conservative in that moment to be six years too late. <laughs> um, but from there, as said, we, ki- we kind of jump to, I think, about 500 years in the future of where uh, multivac has continued to develop to the point of when now each uh, spaceship that's traveling through the cosmos has its own microvac that connects to the distant AC, I think it's now called, which are just almost Earth-sized, Earth-covering, Earth-covering level-sized computers. 
Uh, Josh, you'll forgive me, but I kind of imagine this as you, Becky, and your kids traveling through the cosmos, and I may accidentally <laughs> refer to your children as Jaredette 1 and 2 in the future. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you know, sounds like all the good names were taken. J1 and J2. They'll, they'll never know the difference. J1 and J2. That works. But like in the first instance, each of these little stories at different moments in human history involve people in very different situations and very different backgrounds and very different moments, but all coming together about the same question. It seems to keep haunting humanity, but they never really seem to head in a direction about it. They always ask Multivac about how can we cure entropy? How can we restore the stars again? And each time Multivac offers the answer that insufficient data for a meaningful answer. But each time Multivac's answer expands a little bit. Wouldn't you say that's right, BJ? Oh, yeah. So so there's a little bit more in the way of, you know, a couple more articles and things like that, you know, goes to insufficient data for a meaningful answer. There is insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Now notice a couple of articles. And then there is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer, which I, I thought was... Reading it a couple of times now, it's like, okay, so so we have a little bit of foreshadowing, and you know, as sort of much as you can do on six pages or whatever. Um, yeah, when yeah. they start talking to the cosmic JIs, when it really kind of, or the cosmic AC really starts uh, ramping up. Yeah. Uh, and th th uh, throughout this, mankind in some is evolving in their own way. They're improving their access to the universe. They're understanding their concerns. But truly, as you said, the main character of this is Multivac, is the Cosmic ACs, whatever name it becomes known of in the generation that is in. Because truly, if anyone here, it's the one that's actually evolving and expanding to the point that later in this story, once mankind has almost abandoned the physical form so it can just roam mentally through the cosmos, AC has now left our concept of reality. It no longer exists in time and matter. It only exists in hyperspace, which just pushes the theme that this is technology we created. This is technology we introduced, but it is so far moved beyond us that as we get more and more of the story that it starts beginning to become the concept of God. So, so essentially, you know, once it's, be, it's completely in, in hypers or mostly in hyperspace and things like that. And, you know, and then man evolves a little bit where, you know, the, the different consciousness sort of, you know, sort of come together. And, and so it's basically a singular body. And, you know, this is sort of the last point of the last time the question is answered and it goes, you know, how can we in, uh, reverse entropy? Like, you know, that actual question is asked straight out mm -hmm. and the same answer is given. And at this point, you know, there seems to be an understanding now by man that, you know, unless we do something, that's it. And so the response in this case, well, you know, keep keep searching for additional data because, you know, that's all we can do. I, I do love that it took apparently 10 billion years for somebody to ask a follow-up question, or at least a follow-up demand. Or everybody else was pretty content with, okay, the machine doesn't know. Someone finally 10 billion years on where literally the white dwarf stars are starting to decay finally says, you know what, collect some extra data, please. To which Multivac responds, I have. For the last 10 billion years, I've been trying to solve this question, and yet I still do not have sufficient data in which to answer. And I also love this line, which is, 
no problem is insoluble in all conceivable circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, I guess as a scientist, that's just, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be one of the main scientific themes that he's going into here is that if you have an eternity, and this will come up again in the last answers, we'll see, is that if you literally have an eternity to work and you literally have the potential to put together all data that exists in all time forever, truly nothing cannot be accomplished as well. Yeah, and uh, no. I mean, I guess as, as, as we get to the end, I feel like he may have been an atheist, but... But religion is like is right there, like it's in him. Well, like he may, he may not have faith in it. He may not have faith, but but it is part of who he is. Yes, but his concept of religion is a machine made by man that has evolved beyond its parameters, which is itself by that point a combination of all of mankind that is that existed. Tri- I mean, at one point in in, in the. I mean, the key part of the story is that is trying to solve the energy problem. It's trying to solve the idea that there are finite resources in the universe and that they are constantly breaking down. The entropy is the idea that essentially chaos is constantly increasing. Our ability to make make use of usable energy is constantly going down and can never be restored. Entropy is a net increase for all time, forever, and can't be fixed. And the question everybody keeps asking is, is that, well, if that's true, then all of this is finite. All of this has to end. No matter how much we expand... No matter where we go, eventually there will be an end to man. The earth, the earth itself will die. Mankind, wherever they will go, will die with will die as well. How can we solve this problem? As they reach a point, I love the conversation. They have one point of where about halfway into the various generations, whatever else they're covering, it's two people talking about that they no longer have sufficient resources in their own galaxy, and they are growing at a fast enough rate that they're going to need another galaxy. They're going to need another galaxy in ten years. And then they're going to need two more galaxies 10 years after that just to do normal geometric growth. So they're reaching a reasonable point of where there will not be enough galaxies and there will not be enough stars to provide energy for them in a demonstrable period of time. And it's a very interesting story in the sense that I don't know many other science fiction stories or stories that I've read that focus on that kind of so far out in humanity that we have to ponder the fact that there is not enough space or energy to provide for us in the actual universe as well as just from the universe itself naturally breaking down but point i was going to is that later in the story multivac has basically all of humanity download into it and so at the moment that it truly does become a god at the end of the story where it answers the question and lets light begin again in the universe it is not just some truly foreign entity that we can't understand it is a machine that we brought into the world that is also very much us. So if it's a concept of religion, it is one that's still very much built around the accomplishments of humanity. So after it said, let there be light, and there was light, do you think the AC continued existing? Uh, that's a harder question to answer. Okay, so so, so I, the, I mean, sure, you can like maybe say that's harder a question to answer, but let me... Let, let me read three sentences from you to you from a slightly famous book. It's a vague translation. Please. I mean, I can read you the quote-unquote original, but it's not particularly helpful, which is, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now the earth was unformed and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Yeah. So 
it, you know, the parallels are apparent. Yes. The parallels are two lines that never meet and you can see them right there on the page. Yes. So, and you know, unformed and void, you know, to, to say that that's slightly similar to chaos. I mean, I feel like, you know, the, the, he's, he's trying to, to say something very, very clearly. He just doesn't quite say that the AC is God quite. Uh, as you say, he does everything but. I mean, he's, descri- yeah. he's described it as being truly outside of our universe, of having all knowledge forever to compile in any given time, of it being the governing, the, of it literally bearing the soul of humanity by the end. If it's not God, it's everything but. Yeah, and essentially having always existed. Yeah. At this point. You know, and 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 so to answer the what do you think happened next? I think, and it was good happen next. <laughs> Man, do we think? I mean, do we think that essentially where the story starts is where <clears throat> our concept of history begins, or is it a new universe and new life that's emerging thereafter? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of the question, right? So, like, was there? I mean, so this is where you get into the awesome, you know, circular references. Where is it really? So, like, okay, say you had the initial one, and you know, the Big Bang happened completely by itself and then ac this story happened and then ac decided to prove by basically creating another universe Mm -hmm. so if you still had the humans and everything in it so first the question is did ac just consider its work done and then just like step away or did (laughs) ac sit there and watch everything happen again and humans rose again and built another version of ac was AC needed to like, is AC going to let entropy keep going to zero before doing something again? Or does it just let the next version of itself do it? Well, maybe it has existed for essentially all time and, and has essentially only one thing that it wants now. And that's an interesting point too, <laughs> is that AC's stated goal is to recreate humanity to provide them the answer to the question. I mean, that essentially says at one point that it finally found the answer, but it's got nobody to tell it to. But no worries, it knows how to fix that problem as well. Yeah. Hey, Spencer, I have I have a link to send you. Okay. Yeah. Here. Um, it's not porn, yeah. is it? Nope. Reddit R whoosh? Yeah. What is whoosh? The, the joke that I was making. Oh, God. And, okay. Whoosh over my head. Now I understand. I was whooshed by whooshed. I got it. Go on. Well, well that too now. So I, I was making a joking reference to the, the next story that, that we were going to talk about. Sorry. I jumped on you there, didn't I? That's no, okay. I, well, I, do you I, think, do you think this, this AC would remember its beginning, though? Because it referenced, I've been doing so for 100 billion years, my predecessors, and I have been asked this question many times. It is a nice tie-in, though. I, I was attempting, Spencer. Sorry for your segue. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined it. Go on. Try again. To, to uh, bring into our, our next Asimov story, which is the last answer. Indeed. And here we essentially have, we actually have more than one character now. Um, we have two characters, Murray Templeton, mm-hmm. who's basically there as, you know, 
the protagonist, his name doesn't matter. Basically, nothing about him matters, which is fairly obvious because, you know, he's described, you know, 45 years old, prime of his life, and, you know, doing fine until he got hit by a car and suddenly died, and then that's sort of it. Um, so basically, he's he's there as a, as a consciousness. And, you know, this next story... I think, talks about not to interrupt but i think i think getting hit by the car was the egg i think in uh for uh, last oh, answer he, he just died he just, he just had a heart attack oh yeah oh yeah but you're it, right so it, except for key portions of his coronary arteries yeah so he has he has a heart attack um a little you know he's in pain for a little while he dies and then miracle of miracles as it were he ends up in the afterlife kind of i mean even uh as you say he runs into what he quickly deems to be a godly figure who rejects the label and rejects the concept of an afterlife and explains to him in relatively short fashion that, well, no, I essentially created the entire world for the purpose of selecting a certain collection of individuals to think for me and to think for eternity, endlessly, with no choice associated with the matter. And yes, if you want to view that as a concept of hell, it's probably not inaccurate. And and so... Basically, this pisses our protagonist off, and he, you know, gets unhappy, and he's like, screw you, I won't think. And, you know, as sort of everybody knows about, you know, not thinking about elephants, um, it's it's kind of difficult to, to do that. I mean, he leaves it rather ambiguous what exactly he wishes him to do. He only simply describes it as he wishes him to think. And as they kind of explore it further, he starts asking him questions getting increasingly less afraid of internal damnation given the fate that's already set for him. Uh, you re- the, go- the godly figure, whatever else you wish to describe him as, essentially admits that there are possibly other beings like him out there, but this is his universe and his alone, created for only his purposes, and that he accepts that despite being the equivalent of a godly figure, despite being able to be in a thousand places at once, being able to be aware of everything at once, that whether he is truly omnipotent is outside of his knowledge. That since he has no concept of his own creation, that he views himself as timeless, he acknowledges that there inherently must be limits on what he can know. And that even if he is truly aware of the infinite, is the same thing as having infinite knowledge, the same level of infinity as the infinity of unknowns as well. It's just so funny that he basically brings up, you know, a little bit of, I would, put in quotes higher math of the different sizes of infinities which i thought was kind of hilariously funny um and basically there are countable infinites and uncountable infinites and so if you think of the integers you can count the integers and so they end up being infinite Mm -hmm. whereas there are other infinities that are uncountable because you can show that you know there are portions of them that you can count but between any of those uh, discrete objects that you set out, there's another infinity essentially between those two. So there are infinities that you can't count Mm -hmm. and you can't even identify the, the members of that set. If, if we want to go down a little bit of that route. Um, And so one of the things that I find really funny is the terminology of um, at least the most basic of these two infinities, 
Um, so accountable infinity, like the integers or, or something along those lines, is, is called C. And for whatever reason, there had to have been enough Jews that were mathematicians that the next one after that is called Aleph Not. Why? I don't know the history of that, but, but, but what I can tell you is that apparently if you were writing a thesis back in the day where you had you know somebody on a typewriter, you actually had to leave spaces for every time that you had this in and essentially write them in by hand or find a, you know, a typewriter that had an olive on it and then go back essentially and put them in. Hmm. Um, my dad wrote his thesis back in, in those days and was telling me about how like you, you had to do things like that. And math was one of the more entertaining um, specialties where you had, you know, different fonts that people would use and, and different characters from different languages. Cause you know, they had to represent so many different things essentially with a single character. Hmm. Well, so in, ter in terms of exploring the infinities, our main character quickly grasps on the concept that you pointed out, that you can think of it infinity integers and then divide it by two, and then you've got an entirely different set of integers to cover. Um, to which our godly figure is very much reassured that he's picked the right person and that he will be ideal for the purposes. That he essentially can't, or at least chooses not to think of all things forever. And so that over the many endless e eons of time, our main character will think of new things. We'll think of novel things. We'll think of things that our godly figure has never pondered or just never bothered to ponder. And that will be his purpose forever. To which, how does our main character react to that potentiality? Uh, well, well, if we're going to keep freak it... Freaking out. Yeah, well, I, I would guess freak out a little bit, but if we're... It's the, uh... I feel like it's like the two-year-old, you know, you have to go to bed now. No, you can't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. to, to which God responds, well, essentially, you're going to be sitting here forever, so inevitably, you will do what I want you to do. To which the two-year-old responds, fine, I'll subvert it in some way. Rather than thinking about what you want me to do, I think I will think about how to eliminate myself from the equation. I will think about ending my role in your endless torment that you've plotted for me to which uh i guess you didn't fully think that one through because god simply responds oh well that could be interesting but you know when you do successfully do that i'll just bring you back and eliminate the means by which you did that and we can just do that for eternity and i'll still get the same value out of it yep that'll be fun for a little while okay to which <laughs> eternity in this situation is definitely the uh, the abyss that you stare into. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. I, I think also this story does a really good job of starting to give a concept of what eternity is. Right, and the hopelessness. Because it's not, it's not like oh my god, it's like forever. No, right. it's it's really forever. Like you don't get it. Like th th we're talking about infinity we're, we're really talking about something that very literally goes on forever yeah. and so yes sure you can do these minor things which might take a long time but a long time isn't forever yeah we don't truly have a human concept of forever it's the reason that we have time as a concept is because 
we need to be able to measure things to have any understanding of them. We don't really get the infinite. It's hard to even accept it in mathematics. Well, you start having to explore imaginary numbers to a certain degree there, or at least numbers that you can't algebraically calculate to a single page. Our main character, being the clever goose that God hoped he would be, does come up apparently with the question that, well, the, uh, the, the ultimate answer that he's going to actually ponder. Which Good gentleman... Job, clever goose. Which gentleman? What is the what is the uh, end goal of this that he deduces God actually wants him to be thinking about? Well, see, I, I disagree with that. You do? I mean, our main character certainly thinks it's true. The ending is that the the main character says, "I'm going to kill you," and God is that God or the voice or whatever essentially says, "You know, good job. You've you've come to that and faster than any everybody else." Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody eventually comes to that and it can't be done. And he says, well, I'm going to do it. And the voice says, okay, go for it. Best of luck. See you in a few eon. And, and so I don't think the, the main, you know, Murray, our, our, uh, sort of human character realizes that, that that's what, you know, this, the God, the voice, you know, wants him to do. So you're saying here at the end, for where it says basically, for what can any entity conscious of eternal existence want but an end? Are you saying that's coming from Murray's thoughts, or is this coming from kind of outside as a narrator? I think it's the narrator, because because you can, I mean, you can see that you know Murray when Murray says things, or he even thinks things, because you know he's not saying saying things, that it's in quotes. So then, are you saying we shouldn't necessarily trust the narrator, or is the narrator... I mean, I guess they don't state it unequivocally. They state it as a question. I, I always assume that the end was uh, just like the beginning, of where it's a narrator describing it. It's still, it's still describing what conclusions Murray himself had reached. I mean, he seems to be... He's clearly decided that he's going to try to think of a way for the creator or whatever else to end. And immediately then the narrator jumps jumps in thereafter that that is inevitably what any endless being, any eternal existence would wish to uh, find a solution for. Okay. I mean, I, I guess, you know, we can quibble about, you know, what, what Murray thinks versus, versus not. I mean, I, I guess I, I see it as more, you know, the voice or God or whatever yeah. as, you know, under having a better understanding of, of what the goal is than Murray does. And Murray at this point is just like, you know, I don't like this. I don't want to be here and may eventually come to understand it mm-hmm. and what it is. And then, you know, I'll give you sort of the other fun part of it is what happens when Murray destroys the voice. I, th- I mean, I think I viewed this as a very cyclical kind of situation of where I just assumed that Murray, either in his efforts to destroy the voice or as part of usurping the voice, would inevitably follow the same path of building his own universe to answer the questions that he needed answered. Yeah, that, that's sort of what, what I was sort of getting at. And, and what I sort of thought is that either, you know, because it's not he's trying to end all the existence He's trying to kill the voice. His tormentor, yes. Right, and but and then he has eternity. So then what happens? 
I, I mean, I, I viewed it as being very much turtles all the way up and all the way down of where I almost, <laughs> I mean, the voice itself admits that there are many others out there, but this universe is his. I kind of took of it to imply that the voice itself hadn't accomplished whatever its goal was. And so it was just creating universes for the purpose of trying to assist it. And that that's just the inevitable process of eternity is that there will be endless voices and endless universes all slowly working to destroy each other. Or I, I guess, you know, I would say to destroy themselves. Yeah. To destroy themselves, destroy each other. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe is a sad thing. I, I guess my other thought about eternity and, and, you know, I guess we can sort of, you know, probably transition into our last story and, and not terribly long since we don't have any concept of infinity, you know, what does that start looking like? I guess, you know, we've known each other for an impressively long time. And what is it, you know, close to almost 15 years now, but not quite. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, man, that there were definitely hours and days and, and, and weeks when we were all at UNC together that were, mind-numbingly slow yeah <laughs> and now it's just like oh my god like i feel like we were just you know and next door neighbors you know in the same hall like right you know i, I could walk up across the hall to your and doug's room and just be like all right what's going on let's play some halo let, you know let's do whatever <laughs> and you know we haven't been in the same state for a decade and yet it will always appear fresh to a certain degree that's the power of nostalgia yeah, but but also, you know, I, I'm sure we can, you know, we'll look back at some point and reminisce about, you know, this time is, oh, man, you know, that was a long time ago. And, you know, it, it definitely feels like it's been a while since that time, you know, a little bit more than 10 years ago. But, you know, at what point does that sort of time dilation effect become... It, it, meaningful in terms of eternity. It feels like with eternity, you would almost inevitably have to learn to appreciate the small stuff just because you, the momentous events would just become rep, uh, repetition. You'd almost have to just appreciate the small changes and the small diversity that appears in each cycle. I mean, BJ, you and I were really big fans of mass effect. There's a wonderful conversation that you can overhear of where an alien that can live for a thousand years is dating an alien that can live for like 80 and they're at a shop and they're, you know, looking through various things and they're looking to buy, they're considering buying a fish. And the alien that lives for about 80 years looks at the fish and says, well, why would you get that? It only lives for a couple of weeks and the, uh, or a couple of years, whatever else. And the alien that lives for a thousand years looks at him and says, it's not about how long it lives. It's about how you enjoy your time with the fish. And he looks at her and just realizes you're talking about me, aren't you? And, and it, it does help that solarians are little fish like. Yeah. I think, but I think it really hammers home how one would really need to change their view of the world and change how they appreciate things to focus on the minutia and how much they appreciate the little variations in minutia over the over endless times, because otherwise I can't imagine eternity as being anything other than going stark raving mad. Well, and but also I guess I think the assumption that most most times people come up with when they envision an eternal being is one where time isn't really a thing. Right. You know, it's, it's not a, a one-way arrow. 
it, it's sort of a a map that you can just sort of wander a little bit. I mean, we can do it a little bit with memory, but you know, if you have some eternal being that you know wants to visit the Big Bang or or you know the the fall of the Roman Empire or whatever else, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if, if you know time were as, as meaningful. Or, or as manipulable as to a, at least a certain extent spaces for us, then, you know, space is infinite, but it doesn't seem to bother us anywhere near as much as time being infinite. We can experience time from any location that we are in. Space, uh, we can only experience our own little nook of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would almost posit to a certain degree that so much of human perspective is wrapped up in having a linear, measured, progressive view of time and the human experience that if we ever reach a point of when we actually can embrace a certain concept of eternity or actually can embrace a concept of flexible view of time, I would almost scarcely call that human because it is so foreign to anything that we actually understand and experience. I, I think it's funny that you say that because... A linear progression of time, though I joke about that and say that every so often, is is not a human thing. How would you express it then? Well, because time is is other than some external factors is incredibly subjective. Very much so. We've wrapped it into a package that we can understand and express. Well, yeah, to a certain extent, but. But, well, it's, it's funny that, that we bring that up because there have been very recent strides in, in a field that I study, neuroscience, about how our brain keeps track of time. And it isn't, you know, a cesium atom decay or whatever, you know, they're using for an atomic clock. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's something that's fairly variable. And there are many things, and I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, mind-altering substances, but there are many things and experiences that can change our perspective of time. Mm-hmm. And in terms of our experiences, are very much a is sort of linear at that point in time. You know, I don't know if you've ever, you know, been in a car accident or something where your adrenaline is is pumping and and you have that fight or flight response and things seem to slow a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's clearly not a linear progression of time from your observation standpoint. Well, I'm still not viewing it in reverse. I'm still not necessarily even jumping around in time unless we view my memories being in some way degraded or faulty. I'm still seeing it as moving forward. I'm not. I'm just seeing it at a different pace. Yes, but but Spencer, that's not linear. <laughs> it's let me. It's <laughs> yeah, I, I... it's increasing. It, it, it's still moving in the same direction along the x-axis. How do you want to express that to me right now? The velocity can change. Yes, the, the velocity can change. The cur- it, can, it can develop curves where, where, whereas before it was moving at a steady clip. Yes, I understand so you, that. You can never have negative acceleration, essentially. One other thing that I did really like about this, Please. and think about it a little bit more, <clears throat> to me, this one really just seems more of like, I think it's just all one entity talking to itself. That's an interesting concept of it. Because, I mean, the voice constructed the universe. Mm-hmm. I allowed complexities that produce life and intelligence. And then basically a same thing. So this is something you could have thought of yourself but had not done so yet. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So to me, it's just one infinite entity talking to itself. Are we exploring? Go ahead, Spencer. No, you're going to say the same thing, BJ, please. We, 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 we have our processes come to a consensus, and then we make a decision. <laughs> exploring different aspects of the mind? Oh, well, so, so I, I've been actually playing through and just recently finished Mass Effect 2, mm-hmm. and um, a wonderful char- character in it, Legion, um, basically is a singular representation of an AI that has a lot of different processes that go on at the same time. And so the, this AI life form comes to conclusions as a group, individual parts of it may have sort of different opinions or different thoughts, but it's all sort of part of the same entity. And so you could say that, you know, when there are new processes created, they're very much separate and they sort of have their own, you know, they can have their own body. They can have all these sort of, you know, own separate things, but they all compromise a a single whole. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is that what you were going for, Spencer? uh, No, actually I was just, I was referencing the prior short story that we did last week in terms of arguing, in terms of a person's mind being essentially divided up to solve separate, separate puzzles. Ah, a different legion. A different legion. We're all, all addressing different concepts of legion, including the biblical one at a certain point here. Um, but yeah. I think I think this is a good jumping off point to move on to our next story, because that idea of different aspects of oneself is very much resonating in our uh, short story by Andy Weir. Now, both of you yeah. recommended this, and I, BJ, as you pointed out, we did a real short shrift justice to uh, Andy <laughs> Weir in terms of talking about him last week. What can okay, we talk so, so I feel like the, the when I first read it, it was before he had True. written The Martian. Same, so it same here. just some random into What? Same here. It was just, it was, for much of his early writing, like much of his early writing, it was just an internet story. It was just something that somebody had posted and then reposted on Reddit. Yeah. Um, and I think that's around when I read it, and amusingly enough. And so it, it's sort of one of those things where it's just like, oh, he's just some random internet dude. And then at some point, probably a handful of these random internet dudes are actually going to become famous authors. Now, Josh, you were the one who recommended it. Where did you originally come across it? Do you remember? Um, I actually don't. I, yeah, I, I, somebody recommended it to me somehow, somewhere. Um, I don't think it was in high school. Well, let's see. When was this even published? It's hard to say. Probably in college. I mean, for so many of his, I mean, we'll go, we'll discuss Andy Weir in detail because he's an interesting guy, but for so much of his original work before The Martian came out, and even truly The Martian, The Martian was originally just posted online chapter by chapter, yeah. and it kind of still reads like a serial work like that. That, 2009. that he was yeah. just, he wanted to be a writer, but didn't really have a publisher. So he was just kind of putting things online and developing an increasingly large fan base through that. But what uh, you guys probably know him better than I do. What can you tell me about Andy Weir, the person? Who is this guy that wrote that uh, wrote this short story we're going to talk about? I I actually didn't know too much about him. I mean, I looked him up. He was a computer programmer that you know slaved away in front of a computer for a while, like somebody that we might know. Um, and yeah, you know, always liked writing and and ended up getting into it more and more. 
Yeah, it, it, as you say, that uh, he didn't, he's kind of a different background than Asimov, where both his parents were very much in the science fields. One was a physicist, one was an engineer. Um, but he himself, I don't think he actually completed his degree in computer science, but got very much involved in the field, and then just kind of casually being inspired by his favorite writers like Heinlein, like Asimov, like Arthur C. Clarke, kind of wanted to... Uh, what did you just send me, BJ? I did not. That was... Josh, uh, what did you just send me? Yeah. Oh, an AMA that, that uh, Andy Weir did on, on Reddit back nice. when there were actually AMAs on Reddit. <laughs> but uh, as part of Always Wanted to Be a Writer, he started creating his own blog and posting his own short stories like The Egg and eventually like The Martian itself. What I find most fascinating about the guy is that he's not a trained engineer, he's not a trained scientist, but in terms of hard science fiction, The Martian's being put forward as the best story of dec- best story in decades to represent the genre of how accurate it is, how detailed it is, and how much it sticks very much to Asimov's personal philosophy, but there's a strict divide between fantasy and science fiction. Science fiction needs to be measurable. It needs to actually connect and describe the human condition and chart a future that we actually can reasonably and by a descriptive path reach. And Weir seems to very much be uh, binding himself to those terms and doing that if we wanted, in the Martian, if we wanted to go to Mars tomorrow, how would we actually do it? So it's a fascinating and very incredible achievement for a guy who's not scientifically trained and who didn't have any contacts with NASA or anybody else before he started writing. The egg, the egg itself is something different entirely, and it very much, we talked about earlier, it very much serves as a counterpoint to uh, the last answer, to the point I feel like he read that and said, I want to make a much less cynical version of this and write about it. Yeah, it's like, that's too depressing. Let's Let's do this slightly differently <laughs> so josh I, I feel like this was your uh suggestion so why don't you you uh introduce us a little bit yeah so it was i mean this is the shortest one other than uh, how it happened that you uh, popped on us um basically guy dies wakes up gets talked to and then realizes that he is essentially everyone um but there's another one like him so when he's everyone he is literally every human that has lived on earth and so she kind of started taking that out to you know all the different you know lines of reasoning like you know he was hitler and he was all the millions that hitler killed right and so it kind of makes you realize then like if you come at it from this point of view you know like why would you hurt yourself and so therefore you should be treating everyone else so it's like it's like a a very the selfish um, the golden rule yeah it's, it is i was trying i was going to go with like a mis- more mystical interpretation of the golden rule but yeah it's, it's very much kind of the golden rule explains um, with, with reincarnation. And then just a little interesting bit at the end of basically the person that he's walking with is that, uh, it's like, um, is, is he actually his son or something like that? He, so, he does say he yeah. is, yeah. You're, you're my child. You're one of my kind. And so it's like there are these, like, other, like, intelligent beings that are, you know, vastly above the scale of humans because this one who's all of humankind is still a kid and mm-hmm. still growing. So, 
and as I said, it just it's such a different it's such a different spin off the exact a very similar conversation in last answer. Last answer, at least on the surface, God is presenting this as that you are my plaything, you exist for the purpose of my own advancement and the expansion of my own knowledge. Where in this, God is saying that I created this so that you can grow, so that you can improve, so that you can achieve everything that you could potentially someday be capable of, so that you literally can become a, a god of your own domain. It's just well, I yep. wouldn't say that necessarily. This is a lot more finite because there's a beginning and an end here. There's born and then you are growing. You're basically creating this universe for you to grow into. And there is an ending. Uh, what is it? Once you've lived every human life throughout all time, you will have grown enough to be born. And then, so that feels infinite. But then he says, so the whole universe, he said, it's just, and then the person responded, it's an egg. So that implies hatching and coming out of, and so you're back to the, so it's almost like the infinite contained in the finite, so. Okay, so, but, but then what do you think ha ha happens after the egg hatches? Probably creates another one. Oh, no, no, what do you think happens to, to I, you, the, the, the protagonist, as it were? I, I think it, I think I kind of agree with Josh. I think inevitably this becomes cyclical and it develops its own concept of eternity. I think it's endless gods creating endless universes once again. Okay. Oh, okay. So Josh, is that is that what you think that you know? Uh, I mean, not exactly. Because well, I guess I could. I could feel it going either way because it could just be like a whole different concept of intelligent beings, you know, like beings that live in, you know, higher level dimensions or something like that. Okay, but but presumably the the protagonist is one of those beings. Right. One thing that uh, you brought up, BJ, I thought I, it was a thought that occurred to me too is that this is very much an exploration of the golden rule, but it's doing it in a much less philosophical and in some ways much more. I think the word you used was selfish, and I don't think that's wrong, kind of manner, of where it's not do unto others, it's that literally don't don't hurt yourself. It's kind of, it's it's a, a definitely an exploration of the golden rule. It's an interesting, it's a heartfelt philosophical statement, arguably, about mankind. But it's doing so in a way of saying that literally that if you hurt another person, you are hurting you, which is a more kind of selfish bend on it, is that you are... That each action you take is not just you know hurting another person and that's wrong. You should treat that as if you're hurting yourself. It's that no, literally, you are inflicting harm on yourself through each misdeed you do. How do we feel about that spin on the golden rule in, in the story? I mean, well, it should, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say it should make you um, more likely to follow it. Then, yeah, I, like I think it's it's entertaining for the story, but I mean, I think sort of as a application to anything else i guess i i think that that my sort of flippantly saying it's a selfish version of the golden rule but like that's not really how the story works presumably for for the the protagonist to become an adult to become you know whatever it's supposed to achieve mm -hmm. it needs to go through all of these things and so it's less you know do unto others or don't do unto others or or, or how you should live your life it's 
this thing needs to experience all the wonder and horror and civilization progression and fall and and all of those things Mm -hmm. to become what it needs to become. And so I almost think it's sort of the opposite of of following the golden rule it's it's it needs to experience everything and then once it's experienced all of these things does it actually mature whereas the golden rule is sort of one of those things that is how we you know sort of the the simplest version of a social contract mm-hmm. and sort of just getting rid of the entire notion of a of a social contract because you know in many ways it's perfectly meaningless because you just go through all of these things and, and, you know, it doesn't really matter because this isn't, this, this is what shapes you being able to get to your actual life. That's interesting. And it kind of ties into the divine that's being described in uh, the last question of where for it to be truly become divine, for it to actually have the ability to, to uh, create life, it needs to have all the knowledge that the universe ever had and literally all the souls of mankind wrapped up in it for it to actually achieve it. And this book, seem, this uh, short story, seems to have a similar perspective on what it would truly be needed to um, be a god. Is that you would have to have all time, all knowledge, and all experience wrapped up in a single entity. And that's what makes godhood. I I suppose so. Well, uh, of the three of the four stories we read today, did they, did, you, did you guys have any favorites? Uh, hmm. I don't know. I, I, like so. I, I think they fill different roles for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I guess if I had, so if I had to choose, I would choose the last question just cause I, I feel like it's the most complete in many ways of the stories. I mean, I like the egg, the egg is fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the story I, I sent you, how it happened. I feel like it's, it's just a fun little narration. You know, it's, it's, it does such a good job of sort of peeking in a moment and, and, it's sort of the ultimate maybe in world building, you might say, mm-hmm. but I feel like the last question really has, it has a theme. It has a thread. It, it throws you into situations where you can really imagine what's going on and ties it all together. Um, and, and I sort of feel like that's really some of the essence of, of what makes Isaac Asimov so great. No, and I very much agree with that. I think the four of these stories together make for a great compilation of where they really encapsulate and expand on each other well, hitting the same themes and different perspectives and completing a real philosophical arc with themselves. But as a standalone story, the last question is incredible. I mean, um, Asimov liked to joke that one of the reasons he loved it and one of the reasons it was his favorite was because of the effect it had on his fans, that he constantly had people walking up to him in the street and just saying, oh, you're asking about, I read a story of yours when I was a kid and it was so great, but I can't remember the name. And he would always just say the last question. And he started to develop a reputation as being psychic because he was always right. <laughs> That's funny. But, you know, I would actually say, thinking about it more, I think my favorite is actually the last answer. Really? Just because I'm becoming more and more enamored of this idea of an infinite being completely turned inward having infinite conversations with itself because I just really like the idea of like, you know, you're staring at, you know, looking at infinity is like staring into the abyss and the abyss is staring back, whatever that quote is. Mm -hmm. But like, it's just everything being all this one entity 
dealing with eternity. Mm-hmm. It, it's their yeah. ultimate call of the void. Yep. I mean, it's interesting because our main character, we've talked about this, is that this could arguably be described as his own private hell. But at the end of the story, the main character is in no way downtrodden. If anything, he's inspired. That he's got the last, he has, he's searching out the last answer. He's got a problem beyond compare. And he's got an endless amount of time in which to explore it. In some ways, for certain people, this could be a dream situation of where he has no limitations and no restrictions to forever explore the mysteries of everything. See, I, I would say Murray is, Murray is not the main character. Especially if you think of them as all as one. Because, like, infinite Murrays and infinite types of Murrays, like, so you have the infinite span of emotions. Mm-hmm. I mean, your, your, your perspective on this is that Murray is just simply a, sim- a single aspect of a far larger and truly infinite entity. Of the voice, yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Mur- Murray is just the voice. And so <laughs> it doesn't matter what Murray feels or thinks in some ways because it's just different ways of looking at the infinite. Yeah. I, I'm, pro- I'm not really... No. Putting in words super well. No, I, but, uh, I, I get your perspective, and in some ways, it's the voice's perspective on Murray, of where the voice's perspective is that Murray is insignificant, that he's simply just an amoeba looking at a whale trying to conceptualize it. <laughs> but uh, he hopes that except the whale is infinite. Yeah. Well, do we have anything else to talk about with these, or should we move on to proposals for uh, next week and beyond for what other stories we want to discuss? I think that we did a pretty good job with this, and uh, it's getting late on on the uh, the sad coast. Uh, yes, so, yes, it is. Um, I think we can move on. It, and it sounds like Josh that that you're you're a little bit busy, so probably not joining us for the next one. And we'll sort mm-hmm. of see after that. Yep. Most yeah, uh, likely. So we will miss you. <laughs> Well, does anyone have a proposal for what story might be interested in? I mean, I, uh, BJ and I talked separately about um, reading a Terry Pratchett story of where I've never actually sat down and read uh, his Guards series set in the Discworld series. And that having a nice bit of... Uh, I've never read them. I've never sat down and read them. They're classics of the, fan- of the fantasy of genre, but I've just never had an opportunity. And so I bought a copy. I've already started reading it, and it's hilarious. And I thought that could be a nice change of pace of where just read something that's fun. Yeah, I like that. And I actually think it's really funny. So so when you propose Guards Guards, mm-hmm. which I think is the first of the... Um, the Ankh-Morpork oh, Nightwatch. Yeah, Captain... Vimes. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh... Um, and so I was like, I'm like 99% sure I have a copy of this book. I re- remember like the... Uh, dedication, because the dedication basically makes the whole book. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. With, it was hilarious. Among other things. So I was actually curious if you bought a physical copy, because in the Kindle version, which I got through Overdrive, which is probably the best service ever, mm-hmm. um, it starts on chapter one. It, it does, and I've just, it always does that with every Kindle book. I've learned to go back to the cover, because you miss wonderful yeah. things like this. Yep. 
and you know it's dedicated to to all the henchmen and guards that you know rush in in chapter three or 20 minutes into the tv show or whatever and immediately get killed off by by the main character which is just so wonderful because yep. then you sort of go back and think about you know all the tv shows all the movies all the books where exactly that happens oh yeah it reminded me uh, you guys ever watch the movie galaxy quest oh yeah Wonderful movie. But Sam Rockwell's character, he plays a red shirt that essentially gets stuck in the main story after, you know, the actors are brought on the alien spaceship and have to play out their roles. And he jokes about how, I don't have any role. My role was to die to prove the situation's dramatic. And that, that is, th- this book made me realize how much that, for so many characters that are unnamed, who have no other role other than to just show that some character is badass, threatening, or that the situation is dangerous. Yeah. But that's about that's about a four hundred page story, so our ability to read that in a week might be a little bit limited. Do we want to? Yeah, read? he does. He does have some good short stories. Yeah, set in that world too. We can look into those. Um, I actually had a suggestion for something that's sort of completely on the other side of of I would say sort of everything, but still in fiction. Um, there's this Israeli author that has a couple of short stories that are fascinating reads um his name is edgar carrot you've mentioned them before yeah i think i i i tried to make you read them before and i think you read some of them and and i was actually sort of hoping that we might get one of our um military colleagues on for for that episode but we'll see if we can do that mm-hmm. um and it's two two stories um called pipes and zipper um, which are just sort of fascinating sort of looks into somewhere between the human psyche and some sort of weird, I don't know, fiction, sci-fi, fantasy of your mind. I'm down. Pipes and zipper, you said? Yep. Okay. Well, how about we do this then? That for next week, we'll aim to read Pipes and Zipper, so we've got something to talk about. And then for our long-term read, you guys willing to set Guards Guards as our uh, target for maybe some weeks down the line when we're all done? That, that sounds good to me. Ho- hopefully maybe two weeks. So, you know, we'll, we'll be done with our short stories and, and dive into Guards Guards, but we'll see uh, how that actually plays out because it is a little bit on the longer side. Now, Josh, you said you read it before, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure I have. Um, I think I've read most of the this world. But yeah, most of this world. But so talking about this world, then BJ, have you read the ones where he uses to like describe uh, scientific thinking? Um, I think I've read excerpts. I'm trying. Like I don't think I've read much of Discworld. I've read some a handful of his other books, um, and actually. While I was looking through my books, I started pulling out all of the, I had, well, so in my last move, I got rid of all of my bookshelves because they were falling apart and a mess, and I have all of my books in Xerox boxes, and so I don't go through them very often, so I started pulling out all the books that is like, ooh, we should read this, and we should read this, and so one of the ones that I pulled out is The Color of Magic, so maybe we'll have that as well in, in one of our uh, future episodes. Well, guys, it's been quite a pleasure to talk with you. Um, We've got our set reading list for next week. And to our beloved listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please post comments, questions, or other suggestions for what you want us to read. We should have enough put together that maybe we can talk about them next week and address 
various issues or questions or things you wanted to just talk about of the last few books and as for the next stories we're going to discuss. BJ, just to add it to the text, what's the short? What, what's the name of the author and what's the short stories we're reading again for next week? It's Edgar Carret, E-T-G-A-R, uh, K-E-R-E-T, I believe, and I'll check that and I'll post um, up with things. And the stories are Pipes and uh, Zipper. Um, and actually, before we, we finish, finish, I wanted to uh, thank Lee for a shout out on the the only other podcast at the moment on Mangum Talks um, from Got Questions to uh, maybe try and get us, you know, a third or fourth listener. And, um, you know, if you appreciate Game of Thrones, we just want to hear um, one of our good friends, Lee, sing a little bit. I highly suggest you check out Got Questions. And uh, very recently, uh, we started up a subreddit so if you have any comments or whatever else that you want to shoot over there, um, and we're posting our links to our new content over there as well. And then we have some other uh, podcasts and other things in the works. So uh, hopefully we'll get those straightened out and we'll have more stuff for you soon. Yeah. Until then, stay tuned, keep reading, and we'll look forward to talking more, about, talking more with you next week. Guys, till then. Take care. Have a good one.